to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 168, recorded on February 15th, 2023. The Photo Geekery Show, now back on the air. Uh, third episode since our relaunch, and I am, I, I'm ecstatic here to have my good friend, Jordan, the Mango Destroyer, Drake, on the program Nobody will That's get my that legacy now? That's, That's my legacy as le- mangoes? Okay, great. Yeah, well, hey, no, uh, Jordan, I gotta say, um, the last evidence that you proved that you actually know how to slice a mango failed to pass the test. Um, but we'll talk about that off the air. Okay. Everybody is going to be in suspense. This is uh, the yeah, <laughs> scandal of the century. Uh, but it's been a busy year for video in the, uh, you know, photography and cinema space. And so I wanted to have Jordan on to kind of give us a synopsis of, of what's happened, what's important, the new products out there, why we should, I want Jordan to regale us in the, uh, the eccentricities of a video from 2022 until now. So I asked Jordan to actually send me some stories and I've added some myself to the, to the mix. And the first one that Jordan sent me, I kind of went down the rabbit hole to, uh, uh, to, to figure this out and to see exactly how this is really important to most people, even if you're not shooting with this particular camera in this particular scenario. So story number one, uh, right off the top from DP review, imagine that, uh, Nikon's Z nine 2.0 firmware adds uh, internal 8K 60p raw capture, 120 hertz uh, EVF upgrade, pre-buffer, and more. And so lots of cool stuff that Nikon added to the, uh, to the Z9 there. But the thing that was really interesting and that's caused some ripples in the industry is the internal raw capture, or should we specify, Jordan, compressed raw capture, right? Yeah, yeah internal compressed raw. Um which, you know, I wasn't surprised to see them add that feature. They mentioned that it was coming when the camera was launched, but we're now a few firmware updates past that 2.0 firmware that I sent you the link to. And what's exciting to me is they haven't removed that feature yet. Um, and you know, why would they remove that feature? <laughs> because Red is, I mean, I don't want to just throw the word petty around, but I they do have a patent for internal compressed raw recording that they're very bullish about protecting. And the most recent example I can think of is the DJI Ronin 4D, a camera that I absolutely loved, uh, was released with internal ProRes RAW, RAW video recording. Um, and then a firmware update came out that added some really useful features and removed that uh, once Red threatened with their lawsuit. Uh, there is a lawsuit proceeding between Red and Nikon, but for the time being, Nikon is keeping this feature in their camera, which is really interesting to me. So just keep, keep a timeline on this. Um, yeah. The uh, DP Review article is published mid-April of last year. I found on uh, YM Cinema Magazine, uh, end of May, Red sues Nikon uh, over infringement of compressed raw patents. And you know what? I don't want to just be mad at Red for this. They have a patent. And if mm-hmm. you've got a patent that's worth protecting and it gives you an advantage in the industry that you operate in, it is smart business to enforce that patent, right? You, you can't dunk on them for that. But I also found from uh, DIYphotography.net uh, in uh, late September of 2022. Uh, an article stating that Nikon is trying to invalidate Red's raw video patent, arguing that it shouldn't have been granted in the first place. And this is where things get unusual because there are some stipulations in U.S. patent law that state that uh, very specifically in this article from DIYphotography.net that uh, 35 USC 102, blah, blah, blah. You don't care about the specifics of the, uh, you can look that up if you want. But um, it says a person shall be entitled to a patent unless, and the second option here is really key for us, uh, B, the invention was patented or described in a printed publication uh, in this or a foreign country uh, or in public use uh, or on sale in this country more than one year prior to the date of the application for patent in the United States. So Red was talking about their very first camera, the Red One, in 2005 is when they first started to create some buzz about it. And the uh, the, the Red Code, the, the codec that uses this compressed raw came out in that final product. Hmm. Um, but they only applied for the patent for it in April of 2007. 
And at NAB in 2006, they were showing it off and taking pre-orders for the camera, and they sold out of all their pre-orders a year prior to filing the patent. And, And the timing on this is really particular, because they filed the patent in early April of 2007. NAB was late April in 2006. So that's technically less than one year. Mm-hmm. But had they mentioned it before or taken any pre-orders of the camera, technically sold one, uh, prior to NAB in early April, the discovery of this case is going to be very interesting. Because if Nikon can prove that uh, that RED, uh, they don't actually have a valid patent, then this compressed RAW, uh, this kind of gets a free-for-all treatment, I think, I, which would be wonderful. You'd have it on pretty much every camera because it wouldn't be patent encumbered, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, I find it really fascinating because really the only thing Red added in terms of you know getting a lossless compressed RAW format, something that we've had on photo cameras since I think the Nikon D1, um, is applying to video capture. That's really the so only So what, what, what is difference. the compression that's going on here? Uh, yeah, so essentially what they're doing is oh, on your cameras, you've got the option for lossless compressed RAW, which is just throwing away any information that is stored in that file that your sensor is not actually capable of capturing. And it cuts down on file size in a huge way. Now, on top of that, there's a bunch of different compression options that you can apply to further shrink thing that, things down, especially with video compression, where you can say like, hey, this part of the frame's not moving. We don't need to redraw it 24 or 30 or 60 times a second. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different algorithms for different compression. Right, speeds, and, and I, but- I think Red in their initial patent described that they they don't compress the green channel. They, they, they leave yeah. that alone because that's the, the most prominent for uh, luminosity information, but they do compress the red and the blue channel uh, because the color information that it provides uh, is less important than the luminosity provided by the green channel, and you don't see the difference in the end yeah. product. Especially uh, in the deepest shadows, you know, to have encode all that information when there's really no information there makes no sense. Exactly. So, Nikon, uh, kudos to you guys, man, uh, standing up to, to red. And I, I think red's been controversial for a while uh, with their mini mags, putting consumer SSDs inside of them and charging an arm and a leg for them in the past. They have had lawsuits with Sony and Apple uh, and LG, I think, way back, uh, and a number of other companies too. So this is not the first kick at the litigious can here. But uh, this is one to watch because if this goes to court and there is a judgment, one way or the other, it's going to have an impact on the industry. Yeah, and I, I do think one of my big concerns with Red is you look at something like Apple's ProRes format. You know, you pay an extra licensing fee to be able to use it, and you know, yeah, that's I mean, I've, that I've got my, my yeah, I got my Ninja V yeah. right, and and yeah. so I've got ProRes recording on there enabled, and there's other recording modes on here that I don't have enabled because I'd have to pay for them, and I don't use them, and yeah. so it's a pay-to-play type of scenario with that type of thing. But it has to be an external recorder to handle all of that licensing stuff. And I can't have that built into my camera directly, not as of yet. Um, but who knows? This this could all be changing. Yeah, I, mean, I absolutely love working with Red Raw. I think it's the best compressed raw format in terms of a workflow solution. If they were just like, look, you know, for an extra $300, we'll unlock Red Raw capture on your other camera, especially in markets like, you know, hybrid mirrorless, where Red's not even playing in that field then I would look at this in a completely different way. Like, you know, but unfortunately what they're doing is just stifling the industry um, from taking advantage of this in product categories that Red doesn't even produce a product in. And that's why I would love to see Nikon uh, succeed in invalidating that patent. Let's hope so. We'll keep our eyes on it, and I'll have you back on when we have some news on that front. Uh, Before we go on to the next story, because we're going to talk about a number of cameras here, what was your general impression of the functionality of the Z9 in terms of video and what it was capable of? I thought that was probably one of the biggest steps forward we've ever seen from a camera company. The Fujifilm X-T2 is the other one that comes to mind where they were the worst for video in the industry and then suddenly became pretty competitive. Uh, Nikon, you know, has just always been kind of a little bit middling. Um, Like I I always said, I would never 
jump from a camera system to Nikon if I was interested in video. They had enough right. video features. If you were a Nikon shooter already, you could get by with it. But the Z9 brought so much to the table. Um, like the autofocus on it is fantastic for video, looks very natural. IBIS, quite effective as well. But the overall user interface is super well thought out. They do stuff like waveforms that we've only seen from you know yes. external recorders and Panasonic. They really did seem to be listening. And I know before the camera Every, was Everybody watched, needs waveforms. I mean, I'm not just talking video way. shooters. No, everything uh, is. Stills, if you want to try to judge the exposure of an image, a histogram is so archaic compared to a waveform. And we're not going to get into, you know, vector scopes and stuff like that. You can uh, tinker with that if you're so inclined, but everybody should have a waveform at their hands. And I'm glad that the Z9 has it. Preach, brother. Uh, <laughs> uh, the other thing that I don't think gets enough discussion is how well Nikon's new lenses are optimized for video capture. Uh, almost all of them are breathing corrected, have a separate control point, so you can adjust settings silently with them. I, it's a very well thought out system for video shooters. And the Z9, unfortunately, it's their flagship body, so not as many people are getting access to you know experience that. But it's a huge jump forward. I actually just shot one of my favorite episodes in a long time where we got caught in a blizzard um and that was shot on a z9 yeah it was the worst conditions we've ever had on a shoot and i was amazed the nikon rep was there and he's like don't just keep shooting with it let's see what happens and uh that thing survived and i was very impressed you know what i what i'm gonna do tomorrow jordan is i'm gonna Hmm. mow the lawn because it's gonna be 15 degrees (laughs) (laughs) and i'm gonna try and mask my rage for the rest of this podcast Oh, goodness. All right, let, let's get into some other uh, interesting cameras. The The video market has not left alone the APS-C size cameras. And so we've got uh, the Fujifilm uh, X-H2S and the Sony FX30, which are remarkable cameras in their own right. You mentioned that uh, Fuji has come a long way in their video capabilities. And Sony, this tiny little chunky camera packs so much into such a tiny little package. Um Do these compete with the full frame cameras on the market today for what they could possibly be used for? Because, of course, these are going to be smaller bodies. Uh, They might not be used as a primary camera, but they could fit into smaller places. They could be used for tertiary shots um, and have a quality high enough to integrate within a larger shoot. That's how I read it. Um, But if you're an independent and this is all you've got, do you still have legs? Yeah, I I think they're both doing something really interesting. One thing that not enough people are talking about with the uh, X-H2S that I'd really like to mention is uh, it has a new log profile called F-Log2 with more dynamic range. We've certainly seen this before from other manufacturers. But what's really interesting is the reason that that came out is that camera's using a stacked sensor, which can read out extremely quickly. And almost all cameras, if you switch them into video mode, in order to read out fast enough to read that full sensor at 24 or 30 or 60 frames a second, they'll switch to 12-bit readout on it, which has a dynamic range penalty. With the X-H2S, they're able to read that sensor out at 14. Yeah, it's able to read out at a 70th of a second. So unless you jump up to 4K 120, sensor can read out fast enough to do 14-bit. So we're getting actually dynamic range really comparable to a lot of full-frame cameras. Low light performance isn't quite as good, but just being able to use this in a format that I think a lot of people forget the majority of cinema lenses that have been brought out for the last hundred years are for that super 35 format. If you go to a professional rental house, they're going to have a huge lineup of super 35 lenses for you to pick from where finding things that'll cover a full frame sensor are either quite rare and insanely expensive historically or you're yeah, looking throw at an IMAX lens, lens on that. What will that cost you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you, you get two Sherpas to carry it to set for you as well. Um, they're quite rare. So I really, I always resented kind of that Super 35 seemed like it was getting left by the wayside with all of the recent cinema cameras moving up to full yeah. frame. Uh, you would often find yourself using a full frame camera and shooting it in APS-C mode. Uh, which just seems really counterintuitive. So I love that we're starting to see some innovation again in this class. 
uh, and the FX30 as well, when they brought that out, it's like, okay, it's a 26 megapixel backside illuminated CMOS from Sony. We've seen this sensor before, mm-hmm. uh, but we haven't. It reads out faster than the existing 26. So they're oh, actually so throwing- slight extra polish on that. That's interesting. Yeah, so um, they're putting R&D into their APS-C sensors again. And I mean, they've been using their same chip. You know, I mentioned the Fuji uh, since the mm. X-T3 came out. That was the first time we saw the 26. They've been using an old 24 megapixel sensor that's like five years old. So it's really exciting to see some actual progress on their APS-C sensor front. Because honestly, most camera companies, if they're making APS-C cameras, are going to be using Sony sensors. Yeah, and well, and of course, Sony—they've got the the, the pedigree, um, the S Log three. Uh, they they'll offer you the sixteen bit raw output. Uh, you know, I, I, again, that that's to to an external recorder. That's not going to be done internally and all that. Uh, so, I mean, th- that's a very powerful camera. And and you make a really good point about the Super Thirty Five. Don't let that escape people. There is so much equipment going back. I don't know how many decades, but a lot um, that you might even be able to to adapt. That there's a certain look to certain lenses that obviously it was from an era of manufacturing that you might not be able to achieve today. And uh, yeah, cool. So the APS-C lives and breathes quite nicely, but so too uh, does the Micro Four Thirds format because in 2022, we saw the release of the Lumix GH6. Now, the GH5 was long-lived. We had the GH5S, and then we had the GH5 Mark II because the technology to uh, kick out the complete new numerical increase from five to six took some time. And we're here, and what does this new 25 megapixel sensor in this tiny body, well, it's not that tiny. I mean, if you compare it to the S5 II, which we'll talk about next, but- Yeah, it's um, like, you know, oh, my focus. Yeah, it's <laughs> certainly a very, uh, yeah, we're, we're on video chat right now, and I blurred the camera. But um, yeah, it, it is definitely a bulky body, which has been one of the things that people were concerned about. I mean, I, I want to know, Don, because you were off the air when this was announced. What was your reaction immediately? Uh, my immediate reaction was, oh, this better have an organic sensor. They've been working on it for so many years. Oh, this is, uh, and it's not there. No. Um, so, I, you know, I had the initial, um, I, I guess, disappointment, although that's too extreme of a word. I was hoping that the long delay uh, from the GH5 to the GH6 was because something dramatic was going to happen. And I think Panasonic must have wanted it to be, but you know we've been dealing with uh, economic issues and pandemic issues, and things have just been not on schedule. But they still had to bring a camera to the table with new tech, as best as it could be at that time. And don't get me wrong, it's no slouch. It's got the DP Review Silver Award here, right on it. You know, it, it takes a, a, a camera that is uh, you know uh, definitely worth its salt, but. You know, I'm looking at the features, and yes, it's a new sensor, okay? So 25 megapixels, the biggest that we've seen, I think, in micro four-thirds from uh, the large manufacturers. There might be some outliers elsewhere if Sharp ever came That Sharp out, camera's that never coming out, no. It's never coming out, no, okay. <laughs> uh, so here we have a record-breaking camera. Uh, you know, it's, you know, checking all the boxes further than any of its predecessors, but... It's now competing in the previously mentioned APS-C slash Super 35 type class of cameras that, yes, they have larger sensors and thereby could have larger lenses, but their bodies are just the same or smaller in an overall footprint. So the sensor size is not a huge advantage here anymore when you still have a chunky body. Yeah, I mean, so I'll go through the things that I I do really consider big advancements on this first. Um, It is a much faster readout than what we saw before. We're getting 4K 120 um, with no quality loss. And if you look at even that X-H2S I mentioned with the very fast sensor, it does have to do a crop and line skipping in order to read out. Uh, So if you're doing a lot of slow motion work, this is still probably about the best image quality that you're going to get until... I don't know, clear like the $10,000 mark. Uh, So that is quite interesting. They put a lot of work into improving the audio functionality of it, four-channel audio built right in, dedicated audio interface that works great. I would say the best 
in-body image stabilization for video capture that's on the market right now. So there are some real advancements there. The controversial thing I think is they've got a new sensor with the ability to read out at two sensitivity levels simultaneously. Um, and this is how say an airy camera, like an Alexa is able to deliver so much dynamic range with technology. That's like nine years old, I think at this point. Well, but airy also, you know, based on the format of their recording was different. If I, yes. if I remember correctly, uh, airy does like they'll record every frame of video as a separate file. Right. Yes. And, and it's all uncompressed. And so like the there's a gratuitous amount of data that is collected from that system. And so it's they're able to afford this type of dual readout because of just the the inherent system that they've built from the ground up. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing something really similar. Also, Canon with their C70 is using similar technology to this. It's a really smart idea. And if you're using the dual gain on this, you're getting APS-C levels of dynamic range. So it's kind of like that X-H2S. They've used a trick in order to give you the quality of a larger sensor in in terms of dynamic dynamic range, but not noise necessarily. Um, which is great. The drawback to this is that it's lower sensitivity that it's using. You know, if you're not using that dual gain setting uh, and you're in very bright light, the dynamic range is really bad on it. Um, you really, really want to have both channels running simultaneously. So uh, we found uh, as much as like two stops worse than an OM1, um, which is a 20 megapixel modern. Well, that, that's uh, when, not when you're ideal, shooting is it? It really isn't. I mean, for photographers, we were just saying, you know what, grab a G9. I think that's a better, if you're looking at a micro four thirds, better sensor for that. Uh, but for video as well, it means if you're not aware of, you know, using that dual gain mode, then you are really going to struggle in very bright light with that camera. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a lot of trade-offs in order to achieve that increase in dynamic range. The other thing, I just think the timing of it was very odd because the GH6 was probably Panasonic's most anticipated camera. And they released it a few months before, which I, we're going to talk about this, the S5 II brought phase detect. I, if they'd just held the camera for a little longer and given it phase detect, I think that would have really added a lot of excitement to the launch as well. As is, it's just getting overshadowed by the S5 II. My, my guess is, and I have, uh, you know, when I moved from yeah, Canada to Bulgaria. Uh, Panasonic Canada had to stop the sponsorship of me, and there I, I don't have a non-disclosure clause, so I can guess all I want now without knowing anything. But my guess is that uh, they they're working on a phase detect autofocus sensor for the Micro Four Thirds platform, but it's nowhere near ready yet. And that might be that organic sensor that they were teasing on different formats and what have you, uh, that they're trying to build that into. Because when we talk about the S5 II, you can see that that technology is, it's to market, but it's yeah. in a different format. And let, let's just jump into that, shall we? Because the S5 II and the S5 IIx, I suppose, kind of go hand in hand. Um, I... I love the S5 because it it actually improved quite a bit on the S1 yep. in terms of a smaller body. Uh, video features were improved. Even things like the high resolution mode uh, under the hood, the S all the S1 series cameras were limited to a a one second uh, shutter speed. Uh, you can't go any slower than that when you're doing the high res mode. But with the S5, I think it was five or eight seconds that you could yeah. get to. Uh, and so lots of tiny improvements all over the place within the S5. Loved it, recommended it to people. And the S5 II makes me, like, if I had a choice right now between an S5 II and an S1H, I'd go for the S5 II. I, yeah. I don't see many advantages over the S1H right now, especially with the phase detect autofocus. And you've had hands-on experience, Jordan. Yep. You mentioned that the G, GH6 does great autofocus for video, but how about the S5 II? Yeah, I mean, with the GH6, there were a bunch of tricks you could play with it to make it quite usable in video mode. Um, where the S5 II, it feels like a modern camera. Uh, you know, it can be fooled still. We did some stuff where the camera's moving and your subject moving simultaneously, which a lot of cameras struggle with. But I mean, the main thing here is it's comparable to most of its competition right now. And it's head and shoulders above all of them in terms of video functionality. So now you're getting all that functionality Panasonic has been famous for for a very long time. 
but without that one huge drawback of like, yeah, but the autofocus is unless you really babysit it, basically unusable, um, which I was able to make work because I'm operating a camera, but a lot of people aren't in that same place. So I've been, it's been a bit of a struggle. I've been trying to shoot with the S5 II as much as possible in autofocus because we will have a full review coming up for that eventually. Um, and I do miss some stuff from the GH6 because it's older technology. You know, having a 4K crop again is something that I thought that part of my life was over, but uh, <laughs> it, it, it came back with this. But uh, yeah, the ease of the autofocus system and so many people neglected to mention that a lot of the advancements that we saw in the GH6 carry over to the S5 too. The phase detect is what everyone was excited about, but we're getting that same really useful focus limiter. We're getting the four channel audio with the new audio menu interface. Uh, so it is a huge step over the S5, even looking outside of the phase detect improvements. So l- let me ask you a question. If you had to use any camera of that size, because the the S5 II is kind of the same size as the GH6. I mean, there's... It's smaller. Yeah. They're in the same ballpark, right? Um, Which would you choose? This is really tough, but I I do think I would lean towards the S5 II. Um, You know, like I said, the dynamic range on the GH6 can be up to APS-C standards, but, you know, using the full V-Log is my favorite profile out there. But like you were saying, I think the biggest testament to the S5 II is the S1H has been kind of collecting dust. I would still pull that out if I were on a set where I need a locking time code jam or something like that. But for me, out in the field running around, uh, the S5 II just makes so much more sense. And, you know, I don't use the autofocus all the time, but it is so nice to be like, I want to do a quick bit to camera. I'll just leave it on the tripod, run in front, and I can trust it, that it'll make intelligent decisions almost all the time. Um, you know, it does change the way you work. Well, and I've, I've got uh, the, the S1H on a tripod in my studio right now. I'm, I'm doing some documentary film work. And, uh, you know, I love when I get weird requests from people around the world to do different things. And I, I can't discuss exactly what it is I'm doing, but it's, it's fun and I can do it here in my studio uh, as if I could be anywhere on the planet. And uh, it takes a a, a unique skill set to achieve. But the client, uh, I, I have the ability to shoot uh, ProRes RAW. You know, I've got yep. that. But they're just asking for V-Log uh, because that's just what they need as their end product. And they'll they'll grade it and away they go. They don't want to deal with the RAW for this particular project because it's an independent thing. And that's fine. Uh, I can yeah. do that right in the camera. But it also means that I don't need all of the extra bells and whistles for a client like that. Uh, and, and of course, Panasonic has said that they're coming out with the S52X, which yep. adds. And this, I like this methodology because so it's functionally I. the same camera. Uh, it, I, they changed the badges to be black instead of red. Woohoo! Um, but th- if you want to have special video functionality, like you were mentioning, you want to uh, uh, shoot Red Raw, maybe. Uh, then there could be a version of a camera that you pay upfront, out of the box for that has the extra licensing fees for the patents and the codex and things for the technology that doesn't need to be in the camera that 90% of the people are going to buy. Yeah, exactly. I I mentioned before the ProRes licensing fee. And if you look at the output that this supports, it's going to be internal ProRes, not RAW, ProRes recording, and external ProRes RAW. Basically that $300, I think the majority of it is just the Apple licensing fee is what you're paying there. And I, I do think that's really smart. The majority of people don't need that capability and internal compression has gotten so good. I very rarely find, unless a client requests it, that I shoot ProRes video very much right. now. And H265 I, I is great. Right. Uh, I, I think that there, there has to be a middle ground here. And I know Panasonic has done this before by um, having a, uh, a a license or like a code that you input into the camera to unlock certain features. Uh, and I don't know if that's going to necessarily continue because for the longest time, they just gave those codes away for free as an endorsement or a promotion. And then basically everybody had them. But uh, the idea of, okay, you bought the S, uh, S52X. It's yours. It's your baby. You're using it. That's fine. You buy the S52. But you realize that you're growing and you need some of the features that the 2X has. There's no upgrade path internally. You'd have to ditch the S5 II and get the X version because there's nothing inside the camera that would allow you to have those missing features, even though it's all the same hardware inside. 
Well, it's similar. Uh, so you can actually buy a license. Uh, I hope it still comes in a brown box, which was something I always really <laughs> loved um, to turn the S5 to, uh, to add ProRes RAW capability to it. What you won't be able to get access to is the wireless streaming, the USB streaming, and internal ProRes not RAW. Um, that you have to get the S5-2X body for. Um, now, what I'm curious about, like you mentioned, are we going to see the S5-2X eventually get the ability to record like B-RAW externally, which is something the S1H can do um, for DaVinci right. Resolve users? I would suspect so. So if you're someone who is doing you know video and you need as many deliverable options for your clients as possible, I would, as hard as it's going to be, we're halfway there, just make it till May when the S5-2X comes out. I think it's worth saving the money. Because the cost of adding ProRes RAW to the S5 II is $300, which is the same amount as the premium same for the S5 yeah. IIX, and you're getting the extra functionality. And I do think the black on black looks great. So that's the route I, I would go. I'm, I'm disappointed they didn't go blue. I mean, uh, red is, is everybody's color. Nikon has the red strip. The Canon logo is red. Panasonic. Panasonic's logo is blue. They... I think it's a missed opportunity there, to be honest. But they did it uh, with the G1, their first mirrorless camera. They had sure. the blue one. So yeah, bring that back. I do. I mean, it makes sense on set because there's no reflections. I can't tell you the number of times that you've been looking at like a window that you didn't notice when you're in post, and you're like, oh man, there's a reflection of a Canon logo or you know whatever <laughs> brand your camera is. So black on black does make sense in that case. Otherwise, you know, just gaff tape your camera up if you're on set. Uh, talking about colors, though, um, uh, maybe you have an answer. This is just uh, uh, coming out of left field here. But um, my daughter has expressed an interest in photography, and she wants a camera for her birthday. Uh, but she wants a pink camera. Oh. And so here I'm thinking, all right, I've done a bit of research. Uh, Panasonic made the, uh, the Lumix uh, GF3 in pink. Um, Nikon did some of their one series cameras. I think the J one yeah. and J two, they made some pink versions of them. Uh, and that might be a tiny camera that I could probably get lenses for on the cheap pretty easily. Uh, Pentax has done multicolored stuff yes, in the past. That, that was going to be my suggestion. K 70, you could custom. I don't know if they're still offering the ability to customize your own color. Multiple I'm not going to get her anything current. Tone. I'm not going to do a, like a, a made-to-order Pentax, uh, you know, uh, a rainbow unicorn camera. Uh, but something from yesteryear that's still good. It's been in my mind. And I'm going to put this out to the Photo Geek Weekly uh, listenership. If you know of any uh, qualified, still useful uh, pink cameras, interchangeable lens, right? We're going to have to have that. Uh, that is the only requirement uh, within the criteria here. So, uh, well, let's see what comments I get on that. Cause I, I've got until June to, to make a decision. I wish I'd known this was in the cards while I was in Japan. Cause if I'd kept my eyes out, everything is available in a weird color in Japan. <laughs> that's not available anywhere else in the world. So exactly. Well, I, uh, back, I guess. I guess so. I guess so. Or heck, I, you and uh, and Chris could come out here to Bulgaria as well. It'd be so much fun to have you guys out in Eastern Europe. The caves and waterfalls and mountaintops I could help you explore. Oh, be a lot I want to make that happen. <laughs> All right. Um, we got one more story that I put on the docket here today. And uh, this is interesting because y you talk about cinema and it's often with purpose-built devices. But it has been a thing for quite a while that you could get anamorphic lenses for your phone. And Moment has had 1.33x anamorphic lenses for a long time. Uh, they've rolled out, uh, as of early February, the announcement, I found this on Petapixel, a 1.55 times anamorphic lens, so even stretchier, yeah. uh, or even more compressed that you, you stretch out farther, uh, to add a quote-unquote Hollywood look to iPhone vids. Uh, Jordan? What say you? I mean, I love anamorphic. Um, we've done lots of anamorphic reviews on the show, which no one really watches, but I just do them because <laughs> I like to get a chance to play with the latest and greatest coming through. But I'm not a huge fan of smaller squeeze factors. You know, I really like like your classic Hollywood squeeze was a two times anamorphic. Um, Vazen made some 1.8s that I'm a huge fan of, especially the 28 millimeter in that line. Uh, the problem is, as your squeeze factor reduces, yes, you will get horizontal flare. 
and a lot of people really do see that as the anamorphic aesthetic. Um, I'm less concerned about that. Like I really like my specular highlights to take on kind of an oval shape. The higher your squeeze factor, the more oval those are going to be. But more importantly, when you're moving the camera, uh, there is a very different sense of perspective because you're using a longer focal length um, that comes from anamorphic shooting that I really don't find that pronounced until, again, you hit that 1.8 two times kind of squeeze factor there. Uh, so it depends if you're grabbing it because you want anamorphic flares. And that is, I mean, the new West side story made a good case <laughs> for it. We should have anamorphic flare in all shots at all times. It's beautiful. Well, and I've even uh, seen it in, uh, was it Star Trek discovery? We talked about this before that they ooh. made, um, uh, oval bokeh in the background. Uh, but it was a computer generated background. So yeah. it's just like the anamorphic look is in, in just about every context, but is it just a, is it a fad? Is it because some people did some really good stuff with it that made other people want to replicate the same style, even though their content has nothing near the same caliber? I wonder how many people will go out and buy an anamorphic lens for an iPhone and do something super dramatic with it. I, I just no don't one. know if it's necessarily the platform for that. The, the, there is an exception I was thinking of. If, uh, if you needed the smallest possible anamorphic footage to do, like to get a camera into a space that nothing else can fit, right? Uh, then you would have the option of using the the iPhone, and at least, I mean, it, again, it's not it, it's not a two x, it's not a one point eight x, it's uh, it's less than that still. So you'd have to fit that somehow into your existing footage. But beyond that, it's just like this is a delusion of grandeur type product uh, where, you know, everybody sees this and they want to be the next uh, Stanley Kubrick or um, did, yeah, he used anamorphic a fair bit, didn't he? But sometimes he was, he was more of a spherical guy, but <laughs> oh, well, why I'm, I'm getting my, my guys mixed up. You're the expert but, on that. But uh, you know, if like, it still is fun. Like I can see someone grabbing this, going to the club, it's going to look cool. Um you know, but for, but I don't think anyone is going to use this for narrative. To be totally honest with you, yeah. Um, okay, so maybe I'll get one then. Uh, <laughs> uh, j- just a, a quick aside: uh, this is uh, this is a point know. in the podcast, uh, Jordan, where the internet connection has dropped out briefly, and it's back now. Uh, yep. But it's saying my connection is unstable because I'm on a Starlink connection, and the satellites. Uh, I'm. I am their puppet, but uh, we'll we'll keep on going as we, we finish off this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Before we get into anything else, Jordan, uh, your old haunts are still your current haunts, correct? Where can people yep. find you online? Yeah, you can find me. I'm at that Jordan Drake on Twitter and Instagram, uh, DP Review TV on YouTube. Um, give it a search, and you'll find all kinds of stuff on there. I just put out a video this morning on how to make video autofocus better. Uh, that everyone should take a look at quick, easy fix. Um, so give that a watch because any of my video content that I'm hosting doesn't get a ton of views. So for my self-esteem, that would be very gratifying if everyone could come check that out. Not just give a like, give a nice, fluffy, positive comment, please. Oh, for that engagement sake. is just going to put us over the top. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Um, I, I guess, you know, we have a little bit of time here in this episode where I know that uh, for, for those listening, thinking that we're running through these quickly, Jordan has a hard out and so do I um, at, at about the hour mark. But uh, before we get to our picks of the week, Jordan, have you watched any good movies lately? Oh, good question. I, I have. Um, if you're into filmmaking in, in any capacity... I cannot recommend uh, The Fablemans, Spielberg's latest movie, enough. I mean, it does feel like they had a board meeting and they're like, what does Jordan want in a movie? Well, he wants beautifully <laughs> shot relationship drama. But if we could really, you know, make a large subplot about the magic of movies, that would be great. Uh, so it is 100% a movie designed for me. Um, but the filmmaking there is really fascinating. Um, and yeah, just a real sense of humor um, and you know, I, I thought it would be almost saccharine because, you know, it's Steven Spielberg. When you bring up movies, he's going to be like, well, obviously they're the best and there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever. But it's not the case at all. Uh, like filmmaking ruins a bunch of his friendships, relationships. Uh, and it is basically, 
I should have mentioned this at the part. It's basically a Steven Spielberg autobiography where he's changed the names a little bit. Um, and it's about the I did hear that mentioned. Yeah. yeah. Um, and about but- uh, like his parents' marriage falling apart and stuff like that, that he never wanted to talk about while they were still alive. Um, so yeah, I, he's never made a super personal movie like this. Um, and it's written with, uh, Tony Kushner who did angels in America, which is one of the best scripts ever written. And I would certainly put this movie in the same league. I think it's, uh, it's a real shame. I was never able to see it in theaters. It was in and out in like three days here in Canada. I think, um, where, where did you watch you it? Then? Where can people find it, it now? Uh, it's streaming on, um, on crave here and i think it's on disney plus as well already and the blu-ray just came out so i might buy physical media i'm gonna oh, jump God. on that again you, you'll okay. get all the behind the scenes features uh, I, that uh, i still like that stuff <laughs> but i mean it, it was funny this morning or yesterday the news came out that like netflix bought arrested development and produced their own seasons of it and now they're pulling those off the service there's not going to be any way to watch them anymore so it's things like that that make me think you know what like my absolute favorite you know my top 50 movies my top 10 tv shows i'm just going to get physical copies of them and have that in my back pocket in case something happens I need people like you to make me uh, movie recommendations on a, a weekly basis because that's a great pick. I haven't watched a great movie recently. The last movie we watched was Finch, um, starring Tom Hanks. And uh, that's on Apple TV+. And it's a post-apocalyptic film where uh, everybody is scavenging for the last remains of society uh, as they say, uh, I'm not going to spoil too much uh, in, in in the film. You, you get that right from the beginning. But then Tom Hanks' character is driving around with a, I'm assuming, diesel-fueled open pit mining dump truck. Like we're talking about the things that, that are like six times larger than a dump truck. Many years after the world has collapsed, where is he finding viable diesel at that point? And why is he using the least possible efficiency of transportation just for the and it's just like okay shut up don uh, just enjoy the movie stop over analyzing these things but uh i it think just you might out of be, it. you might be the last person thinking about this movie like i was aware it was something coming to apple tv and i i, I think the reviews described it as forgettable <laughs> yeah yeah and, and so here I, you are still like i, I watched up it in two a days ago sweat at night like ah that diesel truck makes no sense well, it was the same for was it uh, Archive? I watched Archive recently on on Netflix, and uh, I, I'm not going to spoil anything, but I will say that when they were filming it, they decided to change the ending very near the end of production. Always a good uh, decision. <laughs> and when you realize that, like everything is sort of making sense up to that to that point, and then you say, "Aha! Well, there's a twist," but then that twist is like hitting me with a sack of doorknobs full of continuity errors, bouncing back all the way to the beginning of the film because they never went back to fix anything that would have made the movie make perfect sense had that been a thing. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm a curmudgeon about these. I, I haven't seen it, so I can't give you insight, but I assure yeah. you that I am an angry movie watcher as well. <laughs> all right. Well, that's one that will make you passionate, I suppose. Okay, well, there we go. A little movie review. Um, outside of your photographic work, Jordan, before we get to our picks, um, what have you been busy with? How's life in general? Life's been really good. I've, um, yeah, the show is keeping me busy. That's now my entire video production work. Um, and I'm playing music again. I got back together with my some of the people I used to play music with in high school, and we're doing that. So I don't know. We, we might have some shows coming up in the summer. Uh, stay tuned. What, what do you play? I'm a drummer. Cool. I, I can't sing and I can't dance. So the only instrument that would exempt me from both of those responsibilities was drumming. Uh, you can flail yeah, your been, arms wildly. Yes, totally. Yeah, but it's been good. I haven't, I, I haven't had a hobby really since I started doing the camera store TV. So it's been nice to get back to that and uh, mix things up a little bit, put something else on my mind besides family and production. All right. Well, always good to have those diversions. It keeps us creative. Um, now, uh, picks. All right. Uh, l- let's hear what you've got first, uh, Jordan. I'm really curious about what you've uh, brought to the table today. 
Yeah, I, I did a video on it, and I went and checked uh, checked the last time I was on the show because this is absolutely the kind of gadget I would pull out for it. Uh, it is the Axun Simo, probably one of the worst named products in the history of uh, the photo industry. But uh, essentially, there's been an issue for a long time where if you wanted to get an HDMI feed into a phone, uh, there were lots of options for Android, and Sony even made Xperia phones with an HDMI plug built right onto the phone. Uh, So you could send a feed into that, use your camera as a webcam, it was a great solution. But iOS was really locked down. So if you wanted to use an iPad or an iPhone in that way, there were no options that I, I was aware of. Uh, until this thing kind of fell on my desk. So what it is, it's a little uh, clamp that you can stick your phone in with a uh, Sony NPL mount um, battery holder on it. You run an HDMI out of your camera into the SEMO. It sends a USB-C out to either the lightning or USB connection on your iOS device, and it comes in as a video feed. Um, So it's not super high quality. That's the limitation to this. The, the ninja that you were holding up earlier, if you want to capture ProRes raw or lossless video is still the better option here. But so many people are doing like photo tutorials. Like for you, I could see this being wonderful, you know, teaching yeah. a macro class, just clip this on top. You can jump in, on and use it as your FaceTime camera, your actual camera live feed on it. I use it constantly to capture camera interfaces. It was a real pain pulling out you know, the Ninja, then you're capturing these giant files going into it, where with this, I've got really compressed, like I record at 10 megabits per second. So they're nice small files. I get home, I airdrop them onto my computer and I get editing with it. Uh, So it is really cool in that regard as a recorder uh, or streaming device, but also it comes, there's an app available for it that has all of the monitoring tools that we see with professional recorders. You mentioned waveforms as the best way to meter your scene. You get waveforms with it. You get false color, anamorphic D-squeeze, vector scopes, like all of the useful stuff that we'd see with an external monitor. And, you know, a good external monitor is starting at, what, $400 Canadian or something like that? This is $169 Canadian. Um, and also those monitors, the cheap ones tend not to be very bright, but your phone, like, you know, I'm using an iPhone 13 pro, uh, that's a 1200 nit display. I believe on that you're paying a fortune for something that bright, uh, yeah. with any of the other, well, and, and I, I can see this being a very useful thing if I'm doing photography workshops, right. Where I'm trying yeah. to, uh, virtually, add extra cameras and angles into a scenario. And, you know, I've got my phone. It's a tool that's right in front of me, but it's not a part of that equation right now. Yeah, it's been so useful. Uh, Now, I do have some concerns. I do wish that it's using a giant battery. I wish it could charge your phone. But for some reason, there's a, a thing. If you plug into the lightning port, it won't let you charge while it's streaming video out to it. Um, So I was thinking it's already a clamp. Just put one of those um, wireless uh, chargers, build it into it would make a lot of sense there. So you could at least keep your phone topped up while you're using it. Cause I have had the power run out while I was doing right. longer recording. Um, the build quality is not great on it. Um, so I would really love to see, you know, a version two, a professional one. I would pay, you know, twice the price of this just to have a better built one with charging functionality. But the core feature set is really well fleshed out considering that this is the first product of its kind, basically from a company that I barely knew of. I knew them for some battery solutions. So we're going to put a link to your video in the show notes make sure you send me the email to that uh, when we're finished here, because I'm going to watch that video and I'm probably going to buy one. And just like you said, if it does what it does, I'd want a better one. And at that price point, I wouldn't mind paying twice, maybe even a little bit more if it becomes a go-to solution that solves a problem that, uh, well, nothing else on the market can really touch right now from your description. Yeah. And I mean, we'll see, maybe there'll be a whole bunch of competitors coming out for this, but for the time being, it's the only game in town and the price is reasonable and it works well. So I can't recommend it enough. Perfect. Well, talking about reasonable prices, um, my pick of the week is the Platyball. And I might have picked it during its Kickstarter, but they're doing uh, a, a sale right now because they bought too much inventory and they need to clear it out. And 
you know, this, this is a ball head that's a bit unique in terms of ball heads because the ball is actually on the bottom and everything rotates around that. But it has a ratcheting lock system where you've got two buttons. The bottom one loosens things and the top one tightens things. And you can press it multiple times to tighten it. The more you press, the more it gets tighter or looser depending on the direction. But the thing is, it can get moderately tight so that it's kind of hard to move things, but you can keep pressing it tighter and tighter and tighter such that you can make it so tight that you can, I'm, I'm stressing myself here to straighten it out and Jordan's laughing at me and nobody else can see that but him. And I could keep going tighter and tighter and tighter that this will be absolutely rock solid. It will not move on you for any reason. But the reason why that's important to me is as a macro photographer, uh, or even when you're doing any precision work too, cinema might be the same way, although there's different equipment for that that's much more specialized and probably a lot more expensive. When I let go of a ball head, I often have it sag or drift yeah. from the position that I had it in before. This ball head does not do that at all. You can lock things down and it stays so precisely where you put it. And I... I've not seen a single ball head outside of the platyball that, uh, that does that, uh, at least perfectly. Some are better than others, obviously. But they, um, uh, I think they got $80 off the Ergo and $100 off the Elite. The Ergo does not have a leveling system on the back of it, and the Elite does. That's the only difference between them and the color. Um, but either of them are fantastic. And as soon as I put that on my main tripod for uh, everyday workhorse use, it has not come off, uh, aside to hold it up in front of the camera. Yeah. I mean, I, you mentioned for video use, I use ball heads for all of my B-roll setups, and that sag is something I'm constantly battling with. It drives me crazy. I like to use really long telephotos for B-roll, get some nice compression for all my product shots and stuff like that. Uh, so yes, I'm my ears are perked up. I still want to actually review those, so... Uh, may have to get in touch with Platyball here now that the camera releases are slowing down a bit. Uh, that would yes, be I, I can get experiment. you in touch. I yeah. can get you in yeah, touch. I but, believe you have already. Um, yeah, I'll reach out. Uh, but but the, the idea uh, w with this type of equipment is that um, I have way too many lenses and tripods and gear in general that uh, that anybody would consider healthy. And I have a lot of ball heads and I've got a lot of tabletop tripods and everything else. And uh, it's just wonderful to find something over-engineered to the nines that you just can't look at. I can look at this product and I can't find a way that they could have made it better. So yeah. that's my recommendation, the Platyball. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It has been a joy, a pleasure to be on the airwaves again. And thanks to everybody that's been sending the positive feedback in emails and other notes. Uh, it does not go unnoticed. It really helps brighten the spirits for the next episode, uh, which will be coming out next week. I'm looking forward to it. And Jordan, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, means a lot. And we'll have to have you back on again to cover some specific stuff in depth. Yeah, this was far too long. It's been great to talk to you again. And uh, let's do it again much, much sooner. All right. Take care. And uh, to everybody listening, thanks for that. It's time to get out and shoot. Uh -oh.